KCSB FM in Santa Barbara, 91.9. This is Inside Isla Vista. I'm Rosie Boltman with KCSB News. This is the show that shares what's happening in and around Isla Vista and the UC Santa Barbara community. On tonight's show, UCSB Reads, the community-wide annual reading event culminates tonight when the author of Happy City headlines a free event at UCSB's Campbell Hall. Stay tuned now for a sneak peek of what Charles Montgomery will be talking about when he comes to campus in just a few hours. I got to speak with him and some of our conversation is coming up. You'll also hear some UCSB students who read the book about their big takeaways from Happy City. And first, let's go behind the scenes to find out more about the UCSB Reads program and how each year's book is selected. Our KCSB news reporter, Sarah Jagger, spoke with the UCSB librarian who oversees UCSB Reads. So my name is Alex Regan. I use she, her pronouns, and I am a librarian at UCSB Library. My official title is Events and Exhibitions Librarian. And one of my roles is to manage the UCSB Reads program. I know a little bit about UCSB Reads, but could you describe the program for our listeners? It is uh, our campus and community-wide one-book reading program, and it's led by UCSB Library. We're actually going into our 17th year. Each year, a committee of faculty, students, staff, and community members select a book that meets certain criteria and that raises important issues of our time and so that we can discuss it using the book as a launching pad. And what goes into making the decision on the UCSB Reads Book of the Year? We look for a book that is um, obviously well-written by a living author, because we do invite the author to campus as part of the program, and a book that will resonate with folks across campus in multiple departments that can be incorporated into the curriculum, and that raises interesting issues that we should really be talking about. This year's book is Happy City, Transforming Our Lives Through Urban Design by Charles Montgomery. Could you briefly describe what this book is about and why it was selected? Happy City is a work of nonfiction by an award-winning journalist who looks at the intersection of urban design and happiness studies to um, help us to think about what types of built environments, what types of transportation systems, what types of communities really make us happy and contribute to the well-being of all of us, not just those of us with money, not just those of us with influence, but really for all of us. I think the one of the most compelling reasons for selecting the book this year is that, you know, coming out of the pandemic, the book really brings up the issue of living a connected life. And I think that is so important. And there's just many opportunities for conversations around the topic. Also be hosting a talk with the author. When and where will that event be held? Yes. So we are inviting the author to campus. He will be giving a free public talk in Campbell Hall on May 10th at 
everyone is invited to that. The author will also be on campus the day before, and he will be meeting with some student groups, um, some classes, and community members, and he'll use some of those conversations to inform his public talk the next day. And where can our listeners find out more about UCSB Reads? You can visit our website, www.library.ucsb.edu slash UCSB Reads 2023 will get you directly to this year's website. Great. Alex Reagan with UCSB Library. Thank you for speaking with me about UCSB Reads. Thank you, Sarah. This was great. For KCSB News, I'm Sarah Jagger. You're listening to Inside Isla Vista on KCSB FM 91.9. I'm Rosie Boltman with KCSB News. Tonight, we're celebrating the book, Happy City, Transforming Our Lives Through Urban Design. It's the 2023 UCSB Reads selection, and author Charles Montgomery will be sharing insights into the ingredients that make up a happy city. He also told me he plans to comment on our local housing situation in Isla Vista, including recent mass evictions when he hits that stage at Campbell Hall tonight at 7.30 p.m. You and the public are invited to attend this free community event. In a few minutes, you'll hear some of my conversation with the author, Charles Montgomery. But first, find out about what some UCSB students thought about Happy City. I dropped in on the final meeting of the UCSB Happy City Book Club. The environment was very inviting. It attracted a diverse group of students from a variety of backgrounds, majors, and ages. The two book club leaders prepared questions and summaries for the group to debate and discuss. Some topics covered were how city planning can be used to make communities more fair, even though some members of the group doubted the extent to which that could be possible. Others compared what was in the book with their real-life experiences, from growing up in Southeast Asia to the California coast. This student read the book with a campus book club and talks about what she got out of the experience. I think it's been really fun because it's not only are we all talking about like kind of the same topic, but we're all like different majors and I've done this a year in the past too. We're different majors, we hang out with different people. And so these are people that you may not normally see on campus because you are such different majors and we all get to talk and kind of bring in like unique experiences. It's really interesting hearing like all these different perspectives and then we all kind of like start hanging out like at this book club and it becomes like a really fun like kind of social aspect too. Yeah. Has there been anything specific that you think your major has brought to the conversation or somebody else's major has brought? I think for me, it's like I have that science major, um, biological sciences, and then I'm also from film. So for me, it's like kind of like I'm used to looking at things from two very different angles. So, for example, like this book, we were talking about like how the brain works and stuff like that. And I was like, well, I've taken a class that you know, talks about how the brain functions. And here's kind of like the less psychological aspect and the more neurological aspect where somebody's like, oh, I might have taken a social or a psych class. And this is what we learned, too. And it kind of you blend it together and you get a more holistic understanding of something. Another student offered this book review on Happy City. So yeah, I mean, I am enjoying it in sense like it's my first exploration into like urbanism and urban design. So like it has introduced me to a lot of like concepts about uh, various uh, like cultures of urban design and something that I've never known before. I always assumed people just build however the way they wanted to. So 
that was that, that was kind of like the cool part. Um, I think it sort of teeters on the borderline of uh, optimism slash naivety because uh, I don't think happiness, uh, making a city happy, is not is not strictly possible purely through urban design. So I guess in that sense, it there must have been like a little more discussion. Like chapter ten, for instance, was one of those points where we talk about equity in the city and how. So economics and like the politics sort of flows into this story, but um, there should have been more of this. At least, like I, I shouldn't have to wait for like chapter ten to get there, you know. But uh, apart from that, I think uh, a lot of like uh, like the fusion of psychology research, fusion of like human behavioral analysis, and how humans interact with non-living objects like buildings or like streets design. That was kind of cool. This is Inside Isla Vista. I'm Rosie Boltman with KCSB News. In about two hours, Charles Montgomery, the author of the 2023 UCSB Reads selection, Happy City, Transforming Our Lives Through Urban Design, will be speaking at a free community event at Campbell Hall. I had the opportunity to speak with Mr. Montgomery to find out more about what motivated him to write this book and what he's learned. Here is some of our conversation. Hi, Charles Montgomery. Thank you so much for meeting with me. To start off our interview, can you give a brief summary of the book and tell us what originally interested you about this topic and what are the main arguments you make in the book? I mean, it all started for me when I took a bike ride through the, um, the city of Bogota, the capital capital city of Colombia, with its uh, the guy who had been its mayor. And this guy was full of bluster. He had said he had uh, redesigned his city to maximize people's happiness. And, you know, he's a politician, and you, so you always got to take it with a grain of salt. Um, but I was inspired by that idea that, you know, you can design a city in ways that make us happier or less happy. So my book, Happy City, is really an exploration of that idea. What can we learn from, <clears throat> from science and psychology and neuroscience and um, experiments in urban design around the world? to understand how our cities affect us and how we can build cities that really can make us happier. So to go into a bit more detail, what were some of your most surprising findings while researching and writing the book? Was there anything in Bogota specifically that you were like, oh, wow, this does make me happier to be around this? <laughs> well, actually, I think the, one of the most surprising findings is that it's a lesson from uh, behavioral uh, psychology, and it's that we get it wrong all the time. As humans, we're terrible at making decisions that maximize our utility in the future. For example, I, I'm, I'm talking to you from Canada, uh, but uh, this is a problem that millions of Americans make. They choose to uh, uh, buy a big house that's beautiful in a location they find beautiful, um, but they often choose it in a location that's really, really far from where they work and learn and play. And uh, they do it because, well, I guess all of us are uh, quite susceptible to things we can see, the look of the house, the feel of the place, but we kind of ignore the system effects of the choices we make. So we now know that the longer your commute, the less happy you are with your entire life because long commutes steal time for relationships from us. Right. So in your book, you critique urban sprawl, kind of building on what you were just saying, and the negative impacts of long commutes. But you also make an argument about 
overly dense cities leading to negative psychological outcomes such as self-isolation. So can you talk about an ideal city's density level? And if you were searching for a new home, what environment would you search for? Where would you place yourself? <laughs> you know, it's, okay, it's I acknowledge it's a tough question because um, it, everything comes down to context. So um, I'm going to talk about the elements that make for a great, uh, healthy, happy neighborhood and city. And then we can imagine, you know, how that might fit into different places. I'll, I'll let you know where I live. I think I picked the place. So um, it's really important to be able to walk or roll to meet your everyday needs within, say, 10 or 15 minutes of your home. That's the most important thing. Um, because when we meet other people out on the street, in those social spaces, cafes, sidewalks, parks, um, we develop a kind of ease and trust in one another. And, and life just gets easier and better. Um, so these walkable neighborhoods with a mix of uses, enough density to support frequent public transit, for example, and to, to support lots of shops and services, these places they just make life better. And, you know, when you live in one of those places, you get healthier because you end up walking more. So uh, what's an ideal happy city? I actually live in a neighborhood that's starting to become just like that. So I live in Vancouver, Canada. Um, couldn't afford to live downtown, um, but I, um, I, beca I became part of a co-housing group and we are 25 households. We built our own urban village. Uh, but because land here is expensive, we had to go up. So it's a six-story apartment building. Um, we have a common house where we share meals a couple times a week. But we also have a neighborhood where we can walk. It's, you know, one, one and a half minutes for me to walk to groceries, two minutes to a coffee shop, six minutes to a swimming pool, 10 minutes to tennis courts. It, it's all here. So uh, that's my happy neighborhood. So kind of in touch with this idea of being able to walk everywhere, you bring up the idea of carless cities. And I personally am in favor of carless cities, but I know to a lot of people that idea is extremely radical and terrifying. So can you convince our listeners to support carless cities? Why do they not need a car? What would you tell somebody that's been living in the suburbs their whole life, commuting really long, and they think that they need their car? Why don't they? Uh, first of all, I want your listeners to take a deep breath and just stay calm. <laughs> and I'm going to reframe your question because I don't believe a carless city exists anywhere on the planet. But yeah. there are lots of people who are living with the freedom to not have to drive everywhere all the time. So if your listeners are living in car dependent um, dispersal or sprawl, they have no choice. They have to drive everywhere. And we know that can cause all kinds of harms. It's terrible for your kids because they don't get the freedom to go do things. It's terrible for parents because they end up becoming chauffeurs all day long. Um, it's terrible for the environment, obviously. And it's terrible for social relationships because we, we just aren't able to connect as, as much as we'd like to do. So what I try to paint for people is a picture of a place where you get more freedom. I mean, you're Americans, right? You, you're into freedom. I'm told. So what does that mean? Uh, it means, well, I'm thinking of a community in Germany called Vauban, which has been referred to as a car-free community. It's not really. But in Vauban, you're not allowed to park in front of your house. So if you have a car, you have to park it at the, you know, about four minutes away at the edge of the village. 
people who uh, take that car parking, you know, you, you have to pay for your parking spot. So the cost of housing and parking is separated. So housing is much cheaper for people who don't have cars. So they don't have to pay for other people's parking. The streets are slow. I was there hanging out with a four-year-old boy who walked to school alone without his parents, which seems shocking to me, but the parents had said that there's no danger here. The, the kid's safe. Um, when vehicles do drive through the community, there are roads, but they're slow. Uh, when you're in front of people's houses, it's, it's five kilometers an hour. What's that? Three miles an hour. So look, these places are, are sprouting up around the world. People are quite desperate to live in them. They're, they end up being more expensive than sprawl because people really, really want to live there. And if you, if you really wanted to find that place in the United States, one's being built right now. It's called Cul-de-Sac. It's in Tempe, Arizona. And um, it's a, a community of uh, thousands of people that's sprouting up um, next to a, uh, a light rail station. So for these cities where having a car is not super common, they usually have to be very walkable, but also have pretty good public transportation networks. And going back to what you said before, you credit Bogota in your book for having a sexy public transportation system. Can you elaborate on a few more real life examples of public transportation systems that really work well? Sure. Well, I can, I can tell you about the one in my own city in Vancouver. It's all about convenience and freedom and dependability. So when I leave my house in the morning, sometimes I haven't even decided how I'm how I'm going to travel to my appointments. I might take my bike because there's uh, safe bike routes into town. I might grab a car share uh, because I'm in a big hurry. Uh, but I also might take uh, the nearby public transit. So I walk three minutes to a bus stop where a bus comes every eight minutes. Our system is built uh, with uh, like a lattice work of really fast and frequent bus routes, but it's connected by excellent public transit. And we've made uh, a big effort in my province in Canada to ensure that um, all the land around these rapid transit stops is, uh, is built up with shops, services, and lots of housing for people. So these things kind of go together. You, you get that freedom uh, to move, um, and you get that freedom of access to things close by by giving people a bit more freedom to do what they want with their land. I mean, right now, it's illegal to do more than build a detached house in 80% of the land in most American cities. So, you know, Americans basically have banned affordability for most of their cities and convenience. For sure. <laughs> um, I have a lot of personal thoughts on zoning laws, but we don't have to get into that on the radio. Um, so for these less walkable cities in the United States, the ones that have a lot of single family zones, they are very dependent on freeways. And in your book, you talk about the negative impact of freeway systems on the happiness of a community. Can you elaborate on that for our listeners? What are some of the psychological impacts of having a freeway going right through your backyard? Well, people who live near freeways are more exposed to noise and to air pollution which means they're susceptible to all kinds of diseases. They die much younger than people who live far away from freeways. But I think one remarkable thing that's not spoken enough about is, you know, where did Americans build freeways? You most likely built your urban freeways through neighborhoods, uh, people of color, typically black Americans. And if you look at places like Oakland, um, the freeway creates this incredible barrier between 
haves and have nots. And uh, what that does is it takes away people's access, <clears throat> the people who are blocked off by the freeway or the people who get their neighborhoods ripped apart. They have a harder time getting to advanced education. They have a harder time getting to, to accessible jobs. Basically, they're having to put up with the pollution of people who don't even live in their neighborhoods. So it's a ter terrible injustice. Luckily, the good news is that people are tearing down these urban freeways all around the world. And when they do, something kind of magical happens. In Seoul, for example, they tore down this stretch of inner city, a double-decker freeway. And they expected, you know, Carmageddon. Uh, and what happened was the cars just sort of dissipated because there was good pu public transit. And people found other ways to move. Um, but the city wasn't overwhelmed with traffic. And that freeway zone was replaced by a gorgeous urban river and park system. So, you know, the city can be built to work well for people or for cars, but it, it can't do both. Going into this idea of historically and currently marginalized communities getting the short end of the stick when it comes to urban planning, there have been a lot of calls specifically within Black communities that I've been hearing recently to build more green spaces in those communities because that's been historically neglected. Can you talk about the disparities in happily designed cities? And shovels haven't even gone in the ground for this bridge yet, but the Bridge Park project helped raise the money to protect against some of the harmful effects of new green infrastructure. So obviously, I guess this example proves that improving the green infrastructure, just the infrastructure of a city, doesn't inevitably lead to gentrification. But obviously, that's a really big fear. Are there other measures that communities that want to improve, but maybe not necessarily lead to gentrification, what, what can they do? What can they try to accomplish that'll prevent you know the current residents from getting from getting pushed out mm. i think there's an interesting dynamic um i noticed it in anacostia and elsewhere um often we frame these issues around race race and ethnicity but in anacostia what was interesting to me is black homeowners were all for this green infrastructure but renters and renters of every race and ethnicity were scared so there's an issue of class and power playing out here that's attached to land. So there are all kinds of measures that communities can take to ensure that residents aren't displaced. And I think displacement is like, it's good to be more specific. Gentrification can be a good thing in many people's minds. It's the displacement of existing humans and businesses that's, that's the harm. So how can we avoid that? Uh, a community land trust is a really powerful tool to do that, where the land is actually owned by the community or community entity. Um, you know, I'm going to say there are other ways of doing it, too. And one of the best ways to ensure that housing remains affordable is to build more housing. And that seems really obvious, but it's been a big debate across your country and mine over the past decade. And I'm going to say this, it's pretty conclusive that when we build more rental housing, the rental, uh, the rents generally go down over time in a neighborhood. So the place, I mean, looking at Santa Barbara, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong. Is it Isla Vista? Isla Vista, yeah. Isla Vista. <laughs> the best thing these communities can do 
if they want to solve the affordability crisis is, is build the damn housing and build it close to shops, services, and the university. Yeah, people on the side of the debate that maybe don't support building more housing argue that it's really difficult. What are the barriers that people say there are to building more housing and how do you propose cities and local governments get over that sort of thing? Well, the, I mean, some of the barriers just exist in your land zoning codes and your design codes that somebody wrote decades ago when they were living in a completely different world, uh, facing a different set of problems. So those need to be updated. Americans who, again, you supposedly believe in freedom, um, you need to give people more freedom to do what they want with the land they own. And, and that's crucial. So let market rental housing developers, let them do more with the land they own. Now, having said that, in your country and mine, we also need a ton more subsidized affordable housing, community or government owned affordable housing. And then there's another piece I think it's crucial to remember, and that is there is a danger of people in existing affordable housing being displaced. So why, why are developers building up, or sorry, buying up existing affordable housing and displacing people? It's because again, 80% of the neighborhoods, the favorite neighborhoods, they can't buy the land or they can't do anything with the land. So they end up buying land that's already zoned for rentals. But then you have this problem of, of people kicking out low income residents out of affordable rentals in order to you know, fix them up or even build again. And in forward thinking cities, we just, we have much stronger renter protections than you have in California. So in my city, for example, if you want to buy a property, I know this is happening in Isla Vista right now with uh, various apartments. They, someone's bought up the apartments and kicked everybody out, hundreds, hundreds of families. You can't do that in my city. You can't do it. If you kick someone out, you have to uh, provide them with uh, similar accommodation at the same price. And when you're finished renovating, you have to let them back move back in at around the same rent they were paying when you kicked them out. So stronger renter protections are, are crucial. Their house, allowing more uh, duplexes and even quadruplexes in neighborhoods, that can help. But then those people still need to access the rest of their lives. We've entered this era of work from home for many people or partial work from home. So now our neighborhoods need to do more. Why can't someone turn their garage into a coffee shop? Why can't people offer more services uh, in little storefronts on their street corners? This used to be the American way. This used to be everywhere. We can have it again, but it, those, those uses are currently illegal. And then think of your local big box zone or strip mall. These are ideal locations for more affordable housing. And once you get more affordable housing plunked down on some of those vast parking lots, suddenly those become more commercially viable and they become potentially great villages for people who insist on living far away in their cars. They become great villages for people to reach by car and, and you know, enjoy that stroll, enjoy the social side of village life. So we're a little bit over time and we're coming to an end, but is there anything that you would like to add? Do you maybe have any messages for UCSB students looking to make a difference in the happiness of our cities? Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm assuming some students will eventually get involved in governance, 
in, in, in city engineering and urban planning. And you need to know that this old generation of planners and designers and decision makers, they need you. They need to hear from you. They need your expertise because you're learning things in a different way and your experiences are so different from, um, from some of the old fuddy-duddies. Um, but I, I also want to suggest that, you know, whether you get involved in those fields or not, you can change your neighborhood and your city. You can get involved. And it's sometimes about showing up, but it's also about taking action at the local level. Whether you're building um, a little tiny library in the patch of grass in the front of your apartment building, or whether you're simply putting on garden parties with your neighbors, or whether you're sneaking out in the middle of the night with a can of paint, yes, and painting um, a crosswalk where there really should be one to shame the city into taking action. You know, everyone can make a difference. So I encourage y'all to, to really believe that the city belongs to you and it's yours to change and love. Thank you so much for that message. Thank you so much for speaking with me and congratulations on the book. We are so excited to have you here in Santa Barbara. Yeah. Or <laughs> to seeing y'all. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. That's a portion of my conversation with Charles Montgomery, author of Happy City, Transforming Our Lives Through Urban Design. His book is the UCSB Reads 2023 selection. And at 7.30 tonight, Montgomery will be presenting his findings and offering insights into the Santa Barbara area housing scene. Find out if he considers Isla Vista a happy city. You've been listening to Inside Isla Vista on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. Thanks for tuning in Wednesdays at 5 p.m. to find out what's happening in and around Isla Vista. I'm Rosie Boltman with KCSB News. Our theme music is Siesta by Jawser. This is 91.9 FM KCSB.